What's going on, everybody? Want to uh, thank y'all for tuning back into another episode of the Spring Legion Podcast. I'm your host, Hunter Ferrier, joined again for the first time in a while with Austin Seals. Got a good episode ahead of us. Going to get a little insight and a little info, and and kind of pick the brain of of a, a fellow that has contributed a lot to the wild turkey and its habitat. Goes by the name of Doctor Disturbance. Uh, that's Doctor Marcus Lashley. And uh, he's going to be joining us here on a little phone call here shortly, but um, kind of to go over a few things before we get to uh, get to talking to him would be a few updates just from the Spring Legion side of things, because I feel like we've kind of missed out on those the past few episodes with the, with the phone calls, with the Zoom calls. And um, one being uh, the, the new leather patches of uh, Richardson 112s we got in stock. We got a good bit of them. Uh, they've gone pretty quickly, but we should be having a restock here soon. Um, three options there. Check them out if you haven't. As well as um, the Mississippi Wildlife Extravaganza is going to be Friday, July 30th through Sunday, August 1st, and we are going to be there. So y'all come see us. Seals and I will both be there. We'll have a few other hands there helping us. Um, I think. Uh, let's see what booth we're going to be. Booth 509. So I think as soon as you walk in, just looking at the layout here, we looked at it yesterday. It's going to be as soon as you walk in. It's like a little auditorium to the left. We are, that would be what, the back right corner? Back right corner. Yeah, back right corner. Come check us out. That's going to be our first um, go at a trade show, so that should be pretty interesting just to see what kind of hectic mess we're probably in, but we're going to give it a round. And um, looking forward to that. That's something we haven't been able to do yet, just kind of entering the market during a worldwide pandemic. has kind of kind of kept us away from anything like that, so I'm looking forward to it at least. Um, going to have pretty much everything there. We just got, these should be released by the time this episode comes out. If not, we're going to be releasing them really shortly after, but some dry fit polos um, that look pretty sharp. Uh, some We ran a poll not long ago on Instagram, kind of asking what color schemes y'all would like. And, and as of now, we got all three. It's black, uh, like a charcoal smoke gray, and white with the emblem uh, embroidered on it. And they look look pretty good, I'm not going to lie. They did a good job on those. And um, if they're still available, we should have those at the at the extravaganza for those that are local to uh to kind of where we are here in mississippi um another thing i wanted to mention just to uh to get the word out there would be the outdoor athlete uh partnership programs that we've been doing um we've been kind of going at those diligently as as we find out you know kind of how to go about it and what is permitted what is not permitted with the new uh the passing of the new uh, name image and likeness kind of deal there with NCAA and and that's something that we're looking forward to kind of the ability for for student athletes in college are normalized to that of uh, a normal student I would say so looking forward to that and any codes that are associated with those just wanted to let y'all know that that applies to everything on our storefront on the website except for the summer collection of of uh, traveling tees which is like the roost tee the turkey track tee the the front label tee, all those that we added not long ago, that's not included, but everything else is fair game. And Seal's going to see what you've been up to. I think uh, last time you were on here, you were expecting something. Yeah, and it finally came. <laughs> uh, I guess four weeks ago now. Doesn't seem like that long. Wow, but yeah. <clears throat> yep, she's came. She's doing good, healthy. Mom's healthy. Daddy of two now. Yeah. Big brother took some getting used to, but he's finally, finally adapting. So, oh yeah, we're good to go. A lot less sleep, but but this is this is the second round of it. So I feel like you're a little more. You knew what to expect a little more probably than when the first one came. Somewhat, but when you have yeah two, it's a little a little more difficult. But it's it's getting there. It's getting better. First round at having two kids. Yeah, I guess it's still something new. The first one is me and her can me and my wife can focus on one. Now we have to. We got two that we got to focus on. But yeah, it's all it's good. It's it's awesome. It's eventful. Uh, Peyton and I stopped by the other day to hang out, and I'm sure it's not too quiet in there. No, and it, speaking of losing sleep, it's not necessarily because they're not sleeping. It's just because when they finally go to sleep, you can sit down and relax, and you heck yeah, do things you need to do. So, I mean, but, no, it's awesome. But glad to have you back. Uh, it's good to be back. Yeah. Didn't miss too much. We uh we spent most of the kind of off time with between the podcast, kind of uh, lining up a few guests um to kind of go over just some some relevant things in the turkey hunting community as well as this fancy new uh podcast equipment. So if we sound a little 
clearer or more clear. I don't know how to go about that, but we sound a little better, more better. Yeah. It's because of this um this little podcast rig we got here. I'm glad it came in. We've been kind of messing around with it, so hopefully y'all can at least hear us. If you can, we figured something right. But um, with that, let's give. I hope I'm connected to it. This is our first go with this as well. Hello, Doctor Lashley. How are you? I'm doing fine. How are you? We're doing great. I want to thank you for uh, for taking the time to to uh, make an appearance on our podcast. I'm joined here with uh, Austin Seals as our co-host, and um, we uh. We were trying to figure out this new uh, podcast rig we we got here, and uh, we were we we're praying that uh, it connected Bluetooth wise to the phone. But it looks like we got you loud and clear. Oh yeah, yeah. I appreciate y'all having me on. Absolutely, we're looking forward to it, and we've jotted down a few questions that we wanted to to kind of hit on that we think the listeners will find a lot of value out of. But but just kind of easing mm-hmm. into it um, as an intro, just to introduce yourself. From what I understand, we'll have three. Mississippi State alumni on the podcast today. Um, just kind of a background of where you've been and, and where you're at now, what, you, what projects you have on hand, and, and all that good stuff, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so I'm currently at the University of Florida, and I'm directing the U.S. Deer Lab, which is, uh, has just started since I've been here in the last couple of years. So uh, right now I'm, I have a lot of work going on with deer and turkeys, and a lot of habitat-focused work. So I do a lot of, of uh, prescribed fire stuff, and, and uh, that's probably what most people have heard of if they've heard of me before. But uh, I do a lot of, of work with game species in general, and really that stemmed from a love of hunting and fishing when I was growing up, particularly turkey and deer hunting. Uh, that, that kind of led me down this path, and I do have a degree from Mississippi State for my bachelor's, and I went to the University of Tennessee and also North Carolina State. All of those programs were focused on forest management for habitat for game species in particular, and that, again, stemmed from my, my love for hunting and fishing. So it's kind of a, an elevator version of, of who I am where I'm from. Awesome. Well, I think, Austin, what, you, uh, you were agricultural science? Yeah, I was agricultural science at Mississippi State. And um, graduated, I guess, in 17. Yep. And I was oh, okay. a year ahead of that with agricultural economics or ag business, their program there. So, Okay. Yeah, I was in the, the uh, College of Natural Resources there. But, uh, yeah, had definitely had some acquaintances over in the ag discipline. Mm-hmm. It's uh, good, all three good programs up there and, and can't give them – you know, enough praise, I feel like. I learned a lot and some good folks up there. And, sure. Um, but as for the topic on hand, I feel like it's, it's not too unexpected would be uh, to talk about fire and talk about prescribed burning and the benefits uh, that that, that kind of comes with uh, wild turkey habitat and, and turkey population numbers and mm-hmm. some of the correlated, you know, effects of, of doing so. And, and this is honestly a topic that I'm very looking forward to as a, as a turkey hunter, because it's it's not something that I'm too well educated in, and it's something that's always been I've sure. been curious about. So a lot, a lot of these questions are sincere, and I feel like it's gonna it's gonna help anybody that might be in the same situations as Seals and I here that they want to know what they can be doing to help you know wild turkey habitat, and and it's kind of one of those things that sure. you know fire helps, but you don't really know how to go about it. You know some of the uh, the actual right. correlation between it, what what the, the purposes behind it. So. Just to, to give the floor, you know, to you on, on that, just to, to start off, why, why is it so important for wild turkeys to, uh, to kind of undergo these prescribed burns? Yeah, that's a, a great question and, and one that I've thought about quite a bit. Uh, yeah, so just to kind of give you a broad overview, if you're from the southeastern United States or the Appalachians or the central hardwoods or any of the Great Plains, that's pretty much, you know, that's a pretty large portion of the United States. Mm -hmm. Most of that, if not all, depending on where you're at, is a fire-dependent or at least fire-influenced system. And what I mean by that is fire frequented it and was really important in structuring the way that the system functions. 
in terms of the plant communities and the wildlife species associated with that. We typically think of quail as the firebird, but I think of turkeys being right behind them in terms of their dependence on fire, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, the structure that fire promotes in the plant community is really uh, important, particularly for poult rearing, but also a little bit farther along in the process, it produces really high-quality structure for nesting. and we see a lot of things happen in the system when you're using fire that are beneficial for turkeys, like uh, managing the structure so that they have, they can see really well. Also, uh, we can use fire to enhance fruit production and insect production and uh, shift the community of plants toward forward dominance. You know, there are lots of things like that, that fire was integral to creating that system so that turkeys could thrive in it. That's a, that makes a lot of sense really. And, um, and to kind of, to build off that, the importance of, I guess you would say the, the, the timing or the, the parameters that go into, to when you're expecting to burn or, or do, how much does that matter? Mm-hmm. Timing of it. I, I always ask, you know, when, when it comes to the predation and, and, and stuff like that, that I feel like the timing is probably sure. one of the more crucial parameters into that decision rather than just whether you do yeah. it or not. Would you agree with that? The timing is certainly important. There's no question about that. And, you know, to give you a little bit of background on it, from an ecological perspective, if we look at when nature burns things, that's normally centered, depending on where you're at, on about May or June, and sometimes July, depending on where you're from. But in the southeastern United States, and generally about midsummer is when lightning would set fire. And it still does. Uh, but we are responsible for much more of the fire now, and we typically set fire early in the the growing season or late in the dormant season. So a February-March time frame, that's when the majority of people pull a permit and burn. And there are a lot of reasons for that. So uh, now that you have that context, if we're thinking about what is most important, I think probably from a turkey standpoint, the most important thing is whether or not fire is occurring. So the reason I say that is because fire at any time of the year is really good at managing the structure in plant communities and how long, and you know, a lot of things go into this, but how long it's been since the last fire can play a big role in what the structure of the plant community is. Timing becomes more important when you start thinking about specific objectives that you are are trying to accomplish. And in particular, if you're using dormant season fire regularly, we we like to use it at that time for a lot of reasons. And and, uh, that's why we pull the the majority of our permits at that time. You know, it's more stable climate. It's cooler. It's, uh, you know, drier fuels. It's easier to... manipulate the fire, a lot of different things going into that. It's also between hunting seasons. There's not football on TV. You know, we can go on and on for the reasons why we would choose then. But what we're really doing in that situation is just arresting succession. So we're just setting back plants, you know, to to, uh, the ground level, and then they start regenerating again from that. That is not very effective at shifting composition of plants. So what you end up with, and we have some experiments that are that are literally decades long doing this, looking at it. When you're burning at that time, you essentially have a, a lot of plants that re-sprout readily. So hardwood species that are undesirable that maybe have a pine plantation, you have you know hardwoods regenerating into it. You're really good at top killing those plants, but they are really effective and and uh, efficient at re-sprouting from that and then regaining that status into the mid-story. Okay. When we shift, uh, the other thing that, that uh, is really good at doing that is native perennial warm season grasses. So what you tend to see if, you, if you're frequently using fire during the dormant season, you manage that structure really well, but you end up with a lot of plants that are re-sprouting that are, that are less desirable species, particularly hardwoods. Uh, in that, in the case of turkeys. 
if you shift that timing, let's say, to a late growing season, so now we're talking about, depending on where you're at in August, September, October time frame, you can have a big effect on composition and structure then. So we get a lot of good burn days during that time, but it's not typically thought of as a time when we, we burn. There, In fact, that's the least utilized part of the burn window. We have a lot of good burn days, not very many permits are pulled. When we burn at that time, it, it's really effective at not only top-killing those hardwood species, but also outright survival of them decreases substantially. So we, you know, we might have the same frequency of fire. We may be lighting on a two or three or four year fire return interval, but the differences between timing would dictate a, you know, a, a quite a substantial difference in composition just because we're really effective at killing those hardwoods at that time. So what we tend to see, uh, when we burn late in the growing season like that is we shift the plant community toward broadleaf herbaceous plants or forbs, in other words. And th- those are highly desirable for a lot of reasons, especially for turkeys. They, they produce a really desirable structure. They also support a high fruit and seed production, and they support a much higher insect production than you would see in other uh, plant compositions. So, you know, that that's where the timing can really come in and play a critical role is, you know, anytime that you're using fire, you're managing the structure and turkeys have specific types of structure that they need or require at different stages of their life cycle. But if you're trying to strongly influence composition, the timing can become really important for that. So whenever you are, whenever you're burning and you said y'all done some <clears throat> research, it's decades long. What's the ideal time? Mm-hmm. What's the ideal time between burns to get the best out of it? Sure, that, that's a great question, and you know I hate to play the uh, the broken drum that we beat all the time that it depends, but it really does depend quite a bit on a few things. One, what type of plant community are you in? Two, how much rain and how productive is the soil that you're in? And uh, those two things can play a big role. Also, how much sunlight is getting in. There are lots of things like that that matter. For turkeys, we tend to be on the the shorter end of the spectrum for what we are are, uh, looking for. On average, across much of the the eastern range, probably looking at a three- or four-year return interval is a pretty pretty solid. Be a little bit longer and poorer soil maybe a little bit shorter in really productive sites. I've seen some places in in uh, several states, Mississippi included, where, you know, they really need to be on a two-year return interval because the hardwood encroachment is is pretty substantial by three years old. I mean, we already have hardwoods that are, that are higher than head tall, and that's getting to a condition where turkeys are not going to use it very much. So, you know, it, it's somewhere between two and four in most cases, in the south at least. Uh, if we get up north, that can be lengthened even more where you know growing seasons are, are getting shorter. But uh, in general, you know, think about what kind of structure turkeys need for multiple life stages. I think this is one problem that, that I certainly have had and I, I think others sometimes struggle with is they don't need just one thing. Right. We don't we don't need to have the same thing everywhere. They they have particular plant community structure that they're looking for to nest in. Uh, they tend they're weak selectors for nesting relative to other things. So, you know, they can get away with a lot of different kinds of things for nesting. But poult rearing, on the other hand, they're pretty strong selectors. And that's where, you know, I, I see the void, I guess, across the turkey range is. Our poult survival metrics, if you go and look at studies, uh, there have been quite a few, and they show poult, uh, poult success, poult rearing success is pretty poor in every every study. And I think that's probably indicative of, of the, you know, the condition of a lot of their range. And we don't have that much high-quality poult rearing habitat on the landscape. That's where fire, you know, could be really important because, 
particularly the year of and the year after fire, that can be really high quality brood rearing cover. So I think, uh, you know, that that's what is important for you to think about when you're using fire is that it's really important to have multiple years since fire. And I guess the best way to accomplish that is to mix it up, right? You have, mm-hmm. maybe you have a, you're going to do a three year return interval. So every year, a third of your acres could be burned. You may want to mix that up further and start targeting, you know, part of that burning occurring at, at any given time of the year, not all in one season, in other words. So if you start mixing it up like that and having nesting cover directly adjacent to poult rearing cover, uh, that's directly adjacent to a good place to roost, you know, there are lots of things like that that if you're providing those all in close proximity, you start to produce a lot of turkeys. Which I guess that's what we're all looking for, right? Absolutely. So, so, More turkeys. So branching off of that, uh, talking about the years between burns, what is the, the height of the vegetation, your underbrush or whatever that you're you're looking for? What I mean, I, I guess kind of what's too high and what's not enough to to burn? Sure. So generally from from a turkey's perspective when you start to see the average vegetation height up above their eye line then we're starting to think about getting fire back into it so think about how quick that might be in in uh some systems you know particularly in the deep south where we have a really long growing season and a lot of rain that that might be two years after fire we're already thinking about re-entering that sand so that's getting a, a little bit you know at that stage where we have uh you know a little little more rank vegetation in that case they may nest there and uh sometimes even choose to nest there you you progress a little farther where those hardwoods get over your head and now we're not even, you know they're basically not using a sand then when it's ranked with with sweet gums or whatever but uh you know when you have that vegetation below head tall that's getting up around chest tall then we're starting to think about re-entering that sand, although they may be nesting, you know, in in that structure, depending on what it what is there. I think uh, recently Dr. Chamberlain uh, presented some research, and I saw it on social media that was looking at how commonly turkeys use stands based on how much hardwood cover was in it, and it didn't take that much hardwood cover before they were basically not using it at all. So that's really a good thing for you to envision when you're thinking about when, when do I need to re-enter? Think about, you know, that, that's a really easy way to think about how much of it is hardwood re-sprouting and how tall is that vegetation. And, and when both of those things start to get beginning to high numbers, then we're thinking about re-entering. Cool. And that, that definitely, you know, sums it up pretty, pretty well there. And, and like you said, pretty envisionary on I, I can picture it in my mind, you know, the, the height and stuff like that. Cause that's something I'd had in my mind too. And, sure. um, one, mm-hmm. uh, kind of question that I, I've been asked and, and I've, I've heard answers, but, um, I don't know. I can't say that I know, you know, firsthand experience, but I know there's a couple of times mm-hmm. this past year, early season, I was uh, scouting a couple of places around here and, and ran into some forest services that were, that were burning. And, and it was, I feel like, mm-hmm almost youth weekend down here in Mississippi, um, early March. And, and so what is the, how long does it take for turkeys to move back into an area that had been burned, you know, that early springtime? Cause I feel like a lot of it is, is utilizing those few weeks right before turkey season to burn. Sure. I would say on places that we burn where we're putting, we literally will burn and then have cameras set up in the burn stand while you can still see the fire going across it. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're literally getting right in behind it. And when you're on a place that has a lot of turkeys and you have a, you know, you're, you're, uh, you have enough that they walk in front of the camera when they're in the stand, it, it's pretty common for them to be in it, on it, wearing it out, wherever you want to say the next day. Really? That they are in it immediately. And something that we see really frequently during turkey season is we'll see gobblers strutting in it. Mm-hmm. So you think about what where you like to hunt. You know, a lot of times that's an opening that you see one strutting in. Well, if you've got a recently burned area, a lot of times the turkeys will actually use that as their strutting zone. 
And we see that on the camera where when we're monitoring these stands and how frequently turkeys are using it. If you actually model out the data and look at the intensity of use, we see the same thing over you know, a, a six to 12 week period. We really get this big peak in the use by turkeys. And, you know, they're doing lots of things in there, but think about what's happening in that system. You, you've made it relatively open, right? Mm-hmm. So they can use their eyesight really beneficial, uh, you know, for, for that predator, anti-predator behavior. So uh, the other thing is the vegetation is responding, right? Mm-hmm. So now we we have the progression of vegetation. In many cases, if it's, if it's raining and you're in a warm climate, that vegetation may be six or inch, six or eight inches tall within a month or six weeks. So now we have this high quality vegetation that's responding. That's starting to produce a lot of insects. There's also insects that got killed by the fire that are laying around. There are seeds exposed. Basically, it's a smorgasbord of things for them to eat in the stand, right? And I think that's probably why we see such heavy use. We see that from males and females, and in particular, when that vegetation starts getting up to six or eight inches tall, we see hens with poults using that readily. And, you know, we're already getting to a stage not that long after fire where it's a pretty good place for poult rearing. And certainly, you know, a little bit later in the process, it's an excellent structure for that. So I think that's one of the really cool things about fire and turkeys showing us how important it is to it is when you burn they they are on it immediately I mean, i've had cases there there's one case that i think of all the time that's just etched into my brain where we burned an area uh it was only one acre we were doing an experiment we burned this one acre patch and i went back to check on it that evening and there was a, a gobbler roosted in the burned area mm. it's still in the smoke and I was thinking, wow, that, that one acre fire compelled that gobbler to come and roost here. And we had been monitoring that area for two years continuously. And it had been months since we had detected a turkey on that particular site. And we burned and literally that evening, you know, that, that, uh, gobbler roosted. And that was the day before turkey season. So, you know, you can use this for a lot of reasons. One, you can benefit turkeys and their uh, their habitat requirements, but you can also use that timing to enhance your turkey hunting experience. Mm-hmm. I, I can't think of anywhere I'd rather see a turkey strutting, coming strutting in with that big white glowing oh. head than on that back, you know, that, that uh, back filter of black from all the ash in a recent burn. And it's hard to beat that. Oh, yeah. And, they, we, we see them with the data and, and uh, other folks that are researching turkeys in different ways do the same thing when we put tags on them, you know, and, and I look at GPS uh, data from turkeys. We see the same thing. They, they're really strongly attractive, particularly right after fire. And uh, I, for one, I would like to know where they're going to be, you know. Absolutely. I want to know where they want to strut. And uh, I think that's a real advantage to having some fire on the ground right there leading up to turkey season is uh, you know, they become a little more predictable. They're in, you know, all these studies and, and uh, when we're, you know, when I'm hunting, I even do it. I see turkeys associated with recently burned areas when they have access to them. That's uh, I'm a big, you know, I'm a big depends guy and I'm a big, Ask why guy correlation versus causation on on all kinds of stuff going mm-hmm. on in the turkey woods and and that's something that had always kind of just stayed on my mind was if they if they are in these areas right before I've heard you know several times from you know several people that they've seen them in there while it's still smoldering and and they're still smoking the air and you'll see sure. birds and you know I've always kind of wondered is it is it the insects is it the vegetation are they curious is it because they feel you know, there's a black backdrop. They feel like they're camouflaged, but yet can see. You know, they feel safe in there. Mm-hmm. It's the only place they can do that. Um, just kind of what draws them in there. But, um, but no, that's that's very good points and and clears up a lot of questions that I've yeah. I've been asking and I've asked myself. So, yeah, I, I think yeah, it's a, a collection of those things, and and you start thinking about their adaptations and what they need in the system, and then what fire does when it's in the system. It makes a lot of sense that. You know, they should be attracted to it. I don't know if they're black because they, they 
we like to be in burned area, but yeah. uh, it certainly doesn't hurt anything, right? And uh, the vegetation structure, you know, I walk around looking for stuff that a turkey would eat right after burns all the time, and it's just laying around in there. And, you know, I have pretty poor eyesight in comparison. to <laughs> so, You know, but I'm seeing stuff laying around, so I can just imagine that easy access to all that really high-quality food is probably driving a lot of the decision along with the fact that they feel pretty safe when they can see really well. Mm-hmm. well that's uh Either way, if that's if that's where they're at, you know that's a that's a good point to make. You know, right before turkey season, as turkey hunters listening to this, where uh, mm-hmm. kind of you know focus in on um, a couple of I, yeah. one of the more curious questions I feel like that I've been you know having over the years was was how to go about burning. How you know is there what are the specific sure. uh, kind of I guess you would say prerequisites to burning that that one would need just anybody can anybody do it what you know permits are associated how to go about that and and kind of you know what what you need there sure that's a great question there there are a lot of different uh opportunities for people to get training and also to pair up with other people who are experienced so if you if you've never burned before uh, wherever you're at, your state agency has, uh, your forest, state forest agency has uh, training available, almost certainly. And that, that is certainly true in the southeastern states where you can go and normally it's a, a two or three day uh, training. Uh, in Mississippi, I think it's one day now, but uh, that's available. They normally have it at multiple times of the year in multiple parts of the state that you're in. And that's that's one thing that I think is pretty important is to go and, and get that training. Another thing uh, that, that's widely available and only becoming more widely available now that we've really been focusing on this is we have prescribed burn associations or and or uh, learn and burn opportunities where you have either private landowners or it could be uh, professionals, whether they're private consultants or or uh, with an agency or, or what have you that are allowing people to come and get on a burn with more experienced people so that you can gain that experience without, you know, uh, without having to do it on your own, on your own property. So those are the, the two things that I highly recommend anybody take advantage of before ever thinking about going out and, uh, you know, setting a match definitely get that training and there's some other real advantages to doing that so not only do you get the training and you know more about what's going on but also if you do that in combination with a few other things a lot of our states especially southeastern states now have right to burn laws and those are in place uh, because it's recognized that fire is an important or in some cases integral part of the way the ecosystems are functioning where we are and we have a right to burn or you know uh, to enhance wildlife habitat or whatever your your uh, objectives are so those laws are in place to help buffer people from liability so as long as you're you have a prescribed burn manager on site and you have a, a notarized burn permit or smoke permit uh, depending on where you're at, and they call it something different uh, from the state agency, and you have a, a uh, burn plan that you're following, then if something went awry, then those, that legislation is in place to, to help, uh, you know, keep you from liability uh, or, or protect you from that liability. So uh, that's a really important thing that I think is, it's definitely a barrier to people as they're afraid of it, but a lot of people don't realize that we have, you know, legislation and all these states in place trying to help people, you know, deal with that issue because, you know, fire can be dangerous. Oh, yeah. Most of what people see or know about fire is what they're seeing on TV. And that's a lot of times, you know, these catastrophic wildfires. That's not the same thing that we're talking about here where we're using it to enhance wildlife habitat. And if you have the proper training and you're going about that in the right way, you know, our, our uh, agencies ha- have this legislation or our states have this legislation in place where 
it helps buffer us from any uh, mishaps that could happen. When you are <clears throat> burning an area, um, how many people mm-hmm. is it best to have to, to try to keep the fire contained if needed? Yeah, uh, that's a, a great question. I think at a minimum, you want two people. And, you know, if you're, you could be burning pretty small acreage and do that, especially with it really well-experienced people. And depending on, you know, where you're at, if you've got some really good fire breaks, like a lake on one side or something, you know, uh, you can you can get away with it with a fairly small crew. Now, the, the best thing to do would be to have more people than you think you need. So... Do you think you would need to maybe uh, maybe you ought to call a couple extra buddies and have them out there, right? So uh, I, I don't think I, I would say a minimum of two, but it's really about what do you need to accomplish what you're trying to do safely, and that depends a lot on what your what resources you have at your disposal, where you're burning, how much you're burning, what system you're in, you know those kinds of, of uh, issues, but. Definitely a, an important consideration. I think, you know, it's it's good for us to have a healthy fear of fire, right? right? So we want to use it. We need to use it for a lot of reasons, but we should also respect that, that uh, you know, fire is dangerous, mm-hmm. and it can be. So is riding a tractor, right? right. You know, all, all of these things that we're, a lot of these things that we're doing outside inherently dangerous for one reason or another and, and fire is no different from that so having that healthy respect for it uh is important and i think uh you know we start to get comfortable using fire and then we start to to uh relax on you know on that front in terms of of uh, the fear of fire just like we might do in a car or you know riding a tractor and uh you know, it's important to keep that in perspective that even though you have experience, you still need some help to watch lines. You need, uh, you know, other people to, to help brainstorm different aspects of the fire, those sorts of things. So definitely a, an important consideration. Cool. Um, let's see. I'm got, I know I've got one more question to, to ask just real quick, just to build on things. What about you, Good Seals? Yeah, I'm good on those. I got... Uh, we both had notes jotted down. We've been working on for uh, not an hour now, I feel like, just thinking of things that we've thought to ourselves. But but one last one before yeah. we wrap things up, would, would um just the kind of the parameters for the burn windows, if you wouldn't mind explaining that, what, what necessarily are y'all looking for when y'all do decide this is a day? Because I know it's pretty selective. I've seen, you know, just following you guys and, and you know, all the ones that are, you know, kind of quote-unquote gurus on it, um, the importance of those mm-hmm. those actual burn windows or specific days, what y'all are looking for there. Yeah, so uh, there there are a lot of great resources for people local to where they are and the systems that they're in, but uh, some of that can vary in terms of the wind speeds that you may be looking for or uh, the the fuel moisture that you need or the mixing height. In general, uh, well, it's hard to put param- specific parameters on it. For instance, the thing that you may be looking for in pine stands may not even burn in an upland hardwood stand, mm-hmm. for instance. Uh, but you, what you're, I, I guess it would be better to think about what aspects do you need to know about to decide whether or not it's a good burn day. And I think one of the important things is the, the, uh, uh, the wind speed, the wind direction. The important thing to think about is where is your smoke going? That's the thing that you know is going to leave the site. And that's actually why you're getting that permit from the state. Uh, it's actually a smoke permit. So that's a really important consideration. Think about where the smoke is going to go. Is it going to be able to get up high enough into the atmosphere to get up and out? That's what you want. Uh, you want enough wind to push the fire along. But not so much that you, you know, the, that you can't control the fire, in other words. So we're generally thinking of, of more in the, you know, five to 10 or 10 to 15 mile per hour range, depending on what you're burning. Uh, so that's another important consideration. Um, the fuel moisture is a, is a really 
or, or like a, the Keach Virum Index, I think is one that, that's really commonly used. You're essentially seeing how dry are the fuels that you're, that you are uh, trying to burn. And it's hard, again, to put parameters on, you know, what, what you want the relative humidity to be, for instance, mm-hmm. because, uh, the humidity you would be targeting in an upland hardwood system would be much lower than what you would be in a really flammable, you know, pine litter or, or a longleaf, uh, wire grass system. You know, those systems that, that are really extremely flammable relative to some of these other ones. You may be looking at a much higher relative humidity where where you actually want that, so that the fire is is lower intensity and accomplishing your objectives. So, uh, an- another thing that I think is important for people to think about, and why some you know how you can what I guess a way that you can foster to get more experience in the particular types of fuels that you're burning in, is to think about scale. And what I mean by that is we commonly think about fire needing to be at a spatial scale that seems daunting to people, especially inexperienced people. So, you know, when we're talking about managing forest fans with fire, you don't necessarily have to be lighting 100-acre, 200-acre blocks. You know, you can scale that down and get some real benefits from that still and, uh, you know, get more comfortable with the use of fire and tinker around a little more with the conditions that you're trying to burn in, those sorts of things. So, uh, you know, think about what's the smallest food plot that you would plant treat that burned area like you would treat that there's no reason that you can't burn an acre here or a couple acres there you can still accomplish some some uh, real big things from a habitat Mm -hmm. standpoint and i think about where turkeys are brooding that's often you know at the on the edge of of small fields or things like that there's no reason that couldn't be a couple acre burned area you know in in, uh, one of your stands i think you know if, if people are thinking about it more in that that uh, perspective and, you know, starting to go out and get experience and burning in different conditions, you can really start to get a handle on what locally are good conditions for you to burn during to accomplish your objectives and, and do that safely. You know, I can't stress enough how important that is to, to get out and get some burning done with people and get some training in your local system so that you really get a good handle on what those parameters look like. And I know I'll be doing that this all season. That's something I've been looking forward to for a couple of years, and that just, you know, just the past yeah. 40 minutes have answered so many questions on how to go about it. You know, it's just it's very much appreciated. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I pretty commonly am out in the yard, and I'll – rake up some different litter or something in a couple meter, you know, a uh, couple meter area and, and burn across it under different conditions, just trying to, to see how things, you know, react. And I think that's a, a good way for people you know, to think about this is you can get down to a scale small enough where you have a, a lot of leeway to start understanding how all this stuff works, right? Some of it's uh, not as intuitive as other parts of it. And you may learn a lot just from burning a, a you know, your, your garden or, or whatever your, your, uh, access is. I mean, that, that's generally what I'm doing is, you know, I, I literally might be in the flower bed burning off some litter and, you know, looking at the differences between, uh, grasses or, or pine needles or what have you. So I think that's a, a really good way for people to think about it and a good way for you to get some, experiences just get down even if it's a scale that you don't think is beneficial for turkeys you can still get some benefit out of that from uh from the practice that comes with it knowledge is a pretty powerful thing especially something that is can be i'm not gonna say is but can be as dangerous as fire um the the respect Mm -hmm. needed for it and the the knowledge is probably one of the more more um beneficial tools and and our tool shed i feel like when it comes to to its handling yeah yeah i i think uh i think that's 
that's a good point and that's you know, it's great discussion to, to think about we know uh turkey's populations especially in the east have, have uh not been doing what we want them to right, right. and uh, there are lots of different reasons for that but one is certainly related to the way that we're managing uh, a lot of these uh these forest stands and the lack of fire i think is a big part of that you know it's pretty common that that i drive a good distance and see no fields that i think of as high quality brooding i mean that, that's you know concerning to me when i'm starting to look at it at the landscape scale and i think fire can be a, a really important and useful tool for people to promote that that kind of of a structure that you're looking for in those systems and and uh yeah another thing to think about uh just one last thing before we go your your state agency on almost most states have a an opportunity for you to get some assistance from state agencies whether it be financial or with personnel resources that sort of thing you can also leverage that through prescribed burn associations where people are sharing resources through those and uh you know there there are a lot of consultants out there that that will come and and uh help you get started burning or just burn for you if you'd rather just pay for that so uh you know there's a lot of opportunities for you to to incorporate fire into your management plan and and i'm glad that that people are starting to think about that critically and uh i'm seeing a lot more fire on the ground and that's that's encouraging to note that there is you know there's there's several different opportunities and 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 ways to go about it because you know as of about an hour ago I knew little to nothing I feel like seals would you agree on that oh, yeah <laughs> and I've learned more in these past few you know <laughs> minutes than I have probably my prior twenty something years so um but I, but I do appreciate people like y'all that y'all are you know very much to thank for for the turkey population today and and future you know populations as well. Um, for what y'all do research-wise, stuff that might not, you know, be seen or talked about as much as the actual, you know, going out there and burning and, and doing the work. But, but y'all, I know y'all, sure. y'all bust it for, for the wild turkey. And, and just as a turkey hunter, we want to, you know, let you know how much we appreciate that. Yeah, well, I appreciate the, the compliments and, and uh, thank y'all for having me on here. I'm just like the rest of y'all. I, I want more turkeys and I'm trying to contribute in my way, and I appreciate y'all doing the same in your way. Absolutely, buddy. Well, well, again, we appreciate you joining us today. Um, we'll, uh, me and Seals, will do a a quick outro real quick, and and we'll holler at you later. Uh, again, we appreciate it, Doctor Lashley. All right, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. That was pretty cool. <clears throat> Not, I, I enjoyed that. Like I said, I, I learned a lot more. And those few minutes that I feel like I have in a long time, and a lot of those were genuine questions. Those weren't, you know, just think of some random things to ask. This stuff I have wondered is, as small as they might have seen. And as much as I like the turkey hunt, and I've turkey hunted, I've had black boots, I don't know how many times, you know, walking through, you know, previously burned areas and, and, and hunted in them and heard turkeys in them. But, but I didn't know the specifics on why that thing was burned. Why is there a turkey in there? Why is there, you know, what, what, what did this look like beforehand and and some of the questions as far as you know how tall is tall enough or too tall that was more of a visual of okay i can i can take this and run with it you know knowing no having no knowledge on it but um but i can think of a a lot of opportunity now that that's available that i did not know about before you know before he mentioned it yeah everyone every question i had was genuine and i don't know it was yeah it was very very beneficial because I would enjoy burning mm-hmm. some of our land we hunt. And I feel like it. I mean, it looks, it's one of those things, like I see people doing it all the time. I'm like, I kind of want to do that, you know, but I thought you had to have like a dang PhD in it or something like that and how easy it could be for, you know, really just ordinary everyday guys to, to how you can become educated on it or be permitted to do it. Right. I mean, pretty much all you have to do is get a smoke permit and mm-hmm. enough people and take off. Yeah, and that's some of the things I didn't like, like wind direction, wind speed. I've heard, you know, stuff like that. That's kind of what I was meaning by the, the parameters that go into it. You know, what is, what climate, are we in a good one, are we in a bad one? You know, all the way down to that. And see, uh, that's what, that's another thing, talking about the wind is, I would have guessed that you wanted to burn when the wind was below five miles mm-hmm. per hour. But what he said makes sense. If you do that, it's not going to, it's just going to burn. It's not going to run. Yep. It's going to burn in place. 
until it burns out. So that's uh, I mean a lot of, and, and a few assumptions that I had are, were proven wrong in that conversation. I, I mean I don't have them jotted down here, but I remember a couple of times thinking, "Wow, I did not you know I didn't expect that," but that's exactly you know makes a lot of sense. And and that's a for the listeners, that's a guy that knows what the heck he's talking about, um, just from from what we've seen and talked to people that that are pretty well known in the industry. They have a lot of, of respect for Dr. Lashley. And, and if y'all need to, to go find him on, on social media, it's Dr. Disturbance on, on, I know, at Instagram, I'm sure a couple other outlets as well. Um, but but people like that and, and, you know, all the people, Dr. Chamberlain, uh, David Hawley, there's always on there preaching about burning and stuff. And they just encourage, you know, folks to do it. And, and education is, like we said, was probably one of our sharpest tools in the shed, no matter who you are when it comes to anything, but especially something that, that is dangerous as, as fire can be if you don't respect it properly. But um, but we in, we encourage y'all to uh, to look into it a little more and, and whether it be, you know, just a, a few acres, like you said, scale it down to, to a little section and almost, I don't, I don't want to say trial and error on fire, but, but you know, give it a give it a little go. You know, once you, you know, educate yourself and, and acquire the correct permits and, and know what, what you're doing and, I might be calling a few, you know, agencies around here to see if they wouldn't mind coming out here and teaching us some stuff. Might get some good content and video that we might can put out there ourselves to, from our point of view of of a first round go at it. Kind of some of the stuff they would tell us is probably a lot of the stuff that some listeners might be wondering. Um, so we'll get to working on that, especially now that we know that there isn't a two set in stone time window of the year to be doing it. We might can do some of that uh, pretty soon down the road, maybe. Um, but with that, guys, we'll wrap it up. We're coming up on an hour, I feel like. Um, Seals, glad you can make it back. Things are back to normal. Got a healthy baby. Yep, glad and to I, be back. Um, but with that, we will uh, want to remind you all real quick about some of the updates we, we said at the beginning of the show would be some of the, the new additions we have on the website. If you want to check them out, leather patch hats, uh, those Richardson 112s. Uh, hopefully, some dry fit polos will still be available. We got some more on the way. Um that and and we'll see some of y'all some of the local listeners here to mississippi at the mississippi wildlife extravaganza friday july 30th through august 1st that sunday booth 509 come say hey to us nothing else you ain't got to buy nothing just come hang out with us for a little while and um with that we appreciate y'all listening to the spring legion podcast see you next time